Well, Pastor Ron, as I mentioned, is on vacation this week, and he asked me to give a message to you all. So I'm honored to do that this morning. The, the theme of my message today is a phrase that we often hear this time of year. Um, it comes from the Declaration of Independence. And the phrase is, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I'm not really giving a patriotic sort of message today, although I will talk about America, I will talk about society. What we're going to do, we're going to look at those terms, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. We're going to try to look at them from a Christian perspective. We'll look at what the popular meaning is, but we're going to contrast that with what is a Bible-based view of these concepts. So, of course, when I'm going to I'm going to be speaking in kind of broad terms in general statements, kind of painting with a broad brush about what I've seen in society. So, of course, there will be exceptions, but it'll just be based on kind of my observations, what I've seen and what I've heard lately especially. So let's start with the first word of our phrase, which is life. What is life? What does the world think about life? And what should a Christian think about life? I think there are probably two ways that you could, many ways, but two came to mind of ways you can think wrongly about life. And one way is to de-emphasize lives, to think less of lives than we ought. How do we see this happen? Well, in the world, people de-emphasize lives all the time, lives that are maybe inconvenient, lives that are maybe seen, seen as less important. You can pick up a newspaper or turn on the television news and you can hear story after story about debates, whether certain lives are even lives, whether certain lives have meaning. And what are some examples? Well, the life of the unborn child. We hear this hotly debated, especially the past few weeks. De-emphasizing life or maybe the life of an elderly person less convenient, too much trouble, not as important. In fact, uh, seems lately we're so mixed up that we even have to debate whether the life of a gorilla at a zoo is more important than the life of a little boy. Now, I'm all in favor of treating animals kindly and everything, but the news is the gorilla is as far as the gorilla is going to go, and the little boy has a life ahead of him of potential and um, and uh, who knows what the boy may develop into. So again, when we're, maybe as obvious to all of us, the life of a boy is more important than the life of a gorilla. However, you turn on TV, you read the articles, it's a debate. Which one's more important? Well, if you've been taught to believe that you are really nothing more than an accidentally evolved ape, maybe it's not such a stretch to think the gorilla has some importance. So the world can de-emphasize lives. Now, the opposite extreme is also a problem. You can overemphasize lives. And how is this done? Well, if our short time on earth is all there is to life, then, of course, I need to maximize my time. I need to spare no expense to stretch those years as far as I can. Maybe I develop the attitude that my life is more important than your life because after all, it's the only life I have. So I need to protect it. I need to uh, 
feed it, care for it, and I can eventually overemphasize our earthly existence. But what does the Bible teach about life? I hope you brought your Bibles with you today. We're going to look at a lot of verses. Uh, They're also going to be on the screen. Let's turn to Genesis 127. It's a good starting place. What does the Bible teach about life? Genesis 127. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That sets us apart right there from all the rest of creation and all the animals. God made man in his own image. We are the only creation made in God's image. Later in the New Testament, you know these words well. Jesus himself said, Pastor Ron talks about them quite a bit, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So God created man in his image. Jesus gives us abundant life. Not just a miserable, barely making it sort of meaningful, meaningless existence but an abundant life, a rich life, a life full of potential, full of purpose, full of joy, a life of significance, a life of meaning. Let's look at John chapter 17, verse 3. This, this verse here, John seventeen three. this is the key to a Bible-based view of life runs counter to what we hear bombarding us from secular society. 17.3. These are the words of Jesus. He says, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's the difference between the secular view and the Christian view. The Christian believes in eternal life, life without end, that abundant life that begins now and has no end. That gives us a completely different perspective on our earthly life, on the struggles and also on the successes and blessings. For example, if you are going through a tough time, you can remember, I have eternal life. The suffering now will end and I can look forward to an eternity with Christ where there is no suffering. Also, Maybe we're having a time of success or a time of blessing. Rather than get it out of proportion and maybe celebrate temporary things too much, we can remember that our eternal life is what matters and we can keep the perspective of eternity. And sometimes when we run into little road bumps along life, we can remember that in light of the rest of eternity, maybe this little thing or maybe this success or maybe this little struggle is not really worth getting too upset about because it is so brief compared to our eternal existence. Let's turn also now to Hebrews chapter 2. We've been, like Roger said, we've been studying Hebrews quite a bit in Sunday school. I invite you to join us. Hebrews chapter 2 is something we recently talked about. 2.14. It's referring to Jesus. And it says, 
Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he likewise himself partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now if this earthly life is all we have, doesn't it make sense that we would be afraid of it being over? We would have a fear of death. And I think we look at people around us, you can see that uh, acted out in their lives, the way they cling to things or, or, or as they get near the end of their life, they have a fear. That's not the case with a Christian. We don't have to be afraid of death. Christ gives us eternal life. We can look forward to an eternity with him and we know the Bible says if we are absent from the body, we are present with the Lord. And one last thought about eternal life. Jesus says to enter the kingdom of God and to have eternal life, we must what? We must be born again. We must be born of the Spirit. The only way to have that abundant life now and forever is to believe in the message of Jesus Christ. And that's really the foundation of everything we're going to talk about the rest of this morning. Um, if you aren't born again, the spiritual truths we examine probably won't mean much or make a lot of sense. So I would encourage you, today's the day of salvation. If you have not been born again, make that decision to make Jesus Lord of your life and to follow him, to open your eyes to his spiritual truths and wisdom that are found in the Bible and that we're going to continue talking about now. Now, the next word is liberty. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So what does liberty mean in our society around us today? Uh, I think the message that we're hearing is liberty means I can do whatever I want and no one else can tell me that it's wrong. I have rights, I have freedoms, I can express myself, and I'm just going to do my thing and everyone can just go along with it or accept it or condone it even. And that's the definition really of a new sort of tolerance. Tolerance used to mean you were free to disagree with someone but you would still let them act as they wanted. But in society today, we don't even have the freedom, it seems, so much to disagree with people. So we have to be tolerant of them in a new sort of way which is basically condoning their actions. That's not a Christian viewpoint but I'm just saying that is what we see time and time again, examples, especially in the news media, which bombard us. Plenty of articles and stories, especially lately, various groups, various lifestyles. I think you know what I mean. You hear about it all the time in the news. And what happens when someone takes a stand against a certain behavior or a certain lifestyle? Then they become a target. They become kind of a villain, right? And then we hear things like, oh, they're so old-fashioned and narrow-minded. Our society has progressed beyond these old repressive value systems. Isn't that what we hear? But what does the Bible say about liberty? Are we really free to do whatever we want and act in whatever way? And I think everyone would obviously say no. We have to obey the commands of God. And let's look at John fourteen fifteen. If we need... A statement about that, John fourteen fifteen is pretty direct. Again, the words of Jesus. Are we really free to do just whatever? 
John 14, 15. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So we're called to obey. We're called to a life of obedience. Jesus himself calls us to obey. Okay, so let's say, yes, we all agree. We know we, can obey, we need to obey God. So as long as I'm in this framework of obedience, does that mean then I can do whatever I want? Is that liberty? Let's take a simple example of food. So in Romans chapter 14, Paul actually talks about food. So let's turn there. We're, we're turning to a lot of scriptures here this morning. John chapter 14, verses 20 and 21. An example about food. Paul says, Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So what does that mean? It means even though I have the liberty or the freedom to eat whatever I want, there are times when it would be wrong to eat or drink a certain thing. If it causes someone else to stumble or if it hurts them somehow, then it would be wrong for me to do it. For example, let's say I am out to dinner with someone who's on a diet. Maybe they're trying to lose weight. Maybe they're trying to eat healthy. This is a simple example. They're watching what they eat, so I order extra helpings and a big, giant, wonderful dessert. Is that right? I mean, I'm free to eat dessert if I want it, right? There's nothing in the Bible against eating a dessert. Or is there? Wouldn't it be wrong of me to eat that and almost kind of flaunt it in front of the person? What if they were tempted to even partake of it? Maybe they're a diabetic and they shouldn't even eat it for a serious medical reason then even though I'm free to eat a dessert, it would be wrong for me to eat it in their presence, wouldn't it? And that's kind of mild and we're not too worried about simple examples like this. But how about a glass of wine? Maybe I don't have a problem with drinking a glass of wine, but I'm dining with a person who struggles with alcohol. Am I free to still drink what I want? I think it's pretty clear that that Paul says it would be wrong. It'd be wrong to bring that temptation in front of that person. I found a quote this week that I think you'll like. It kind of struck me. I liked it. I only read quotes that I like. (laughs) Uh, The quote was, you do not need to exercise your liberty in order to enjoy it. You do not need to exercise your liberty in order to enjoy it. In other words, just because I can doesn't mean I have to. What happens if it starts to mean I have to? What if I feel a compulsion to do something that I have liberty to do? Then it's not liberty anymore. It's bondage. The thing now controls you. So just because I can doesn't mean I have to. If it means I have to, I'm actually in bondage to the very thing. If we look later in Romans in chapter 15, Paul says in verses 1 and 2, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. We could summarize that in a few short words. Love your neighbor. 
Whatever liberty we exercise should be done out of love and with consideration for the people around us. We should be thinking of how it affects others. Our actions and attitudes should imitate Christ who showed his love to us. We need to have that same sort of love for others. So Christian liberty is not focused internally on what I can do and what are my freedoms and what am I allowed to do within a framework of obedience. But Christian liberty is always considerate of how are my actions and how is what I'm doing affecting someone else. And we need to have that consideration and that love to others. So that's life and liberty in a nutshell. And I'm sure we could go on and talk more and more detail about these. I'm just scratching the surface. That's my whole point today is just to touch on these topics. Life, liberty, and the third one, the pursuit of happiness. So how does our society pursue happiness? What are people seeking out? What are they looking for? They're looking for the job, the spouse, the car, the vacation, the body, the food, the drink, the toy, the gadget, whatever is going to bring me happiness, right? And will they find it in things? You won't find happiness in things. Probably everyone agrees with me on this, but if you don't, take a look at some examples. Again, in the news media, how many athletes or celebrities who could afford to buy whatever they wanted really and have the world basically at, at their disposal. They've enjoyed success, but are they happy? Some of them we've seen aren't happy. And out of that unhappiness, even though they have everything, they may turn to drugs looking for the happiness. They may even take their own lives because they're so unhappy, even though they have the money to buy whatever they want. So happiness isn't found in things. And I've learned this lesson myself from time to time, uh, Many years ago, I thought it would be a good idea for me to buy a new car. And I had been researching cars, and I found this one. I thought, this is going to be a great, a great car. I'm, I can just visualize myself riding in this and enjoying it, and it's going to bring a, at least a little happiness to me. So I bought it. And did it bring happiness? Yes, for a couple weeks. Right? And then it's just another way to get from point A to point B. So it does, it, you know, things can kind of give you a fleeting taste of happiness, but it doesn't last. It's not real happiness. Most of us probably wouldn't argue with that. So let's look now. What does the Bible teach us about happiness? Now, you've probably heard the idea that God is not concerned with whether I'm happy or not. And that's a popular thing to say in Christian circles. God doesn't care if you're happy. He's not concerned with your happiness. And you're probably expecting me to say something like, a, a, a Christian should pursue joy and not happiness. Joy is, that, that's our aim, not, not just happiness. But I'm not going to say those things today, mainly because I can't really wrap my head around the difference between being happy and having joy. And I can't really find a strong distinction either in the Bible. I guess part of what I can't understand is like, okay, well, if God isn't wanting me to be happy, then does that logically mean the devil wants me to be happy? Because doesn't the devil usually want the opposite thing that God wants? So if God's not interested in my happiness, does that mean the devil isn't interested in my happiness? That doesn't make sense. So maybe neither one of them wants me to be happy, but that doesn't make sense because I want to be happy. So I'm going to just talk about happiness, real happiness, 
which I don't think is superficial, and I don't think it's based on everything going my way. I think real happiness is found in trusting God. So if you're going through a tough time, that doesn't mean you have to be unhappy. You can trust God, that he's growing you in faith, that he's going to see you through it, that you're being refined. It's, I know, easier said than done, but we have a great example in Paul. Paul is in prison and is in chains, and what is he doing? He's singing praises to God. Now maybe you think, well, he was happy on the inside, but outward he was all somber and, and dour and, 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 and very serious. But I don't know if you can sing praises and be that way at the same time. So I d- I'm not seeing that. But my point is this. We should be pursuing authentic happiness, which isn't based on our circumstances. It's based on right perspectives and right priorities. And what, how we pursue happiness and what we pursue makes all the difference. Let's look at Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And what things is he referring to? He just got done talking about food and drink and clothing. So those things by themselves do bring some enjoyment to our lives, I will agree. I love a tasty meal or a rich cup of coffee or something like that, that that does bring you some enjoyment. But that's not the thing that we pursue. What do we pursue? We per- pursue God's kingdom first. And then these things are added to us. You don't have to turn there, but Psalm chapter 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. These verses say that blessed or happy is the person whose delight is in the law or the word of the Lord. And I'd like to also read from Isaiah chapter 52, which says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The good news of happiness. What is this good news of happiness? When I hear the phrase good news, I think of the gospel of Jesus, the message of Christ. And it says it's publishing salvation. The message of salvation is the gospel. That's the source of our real happiness. Jesus took our sins away and he made a way for us to have fellowship and closeness with God. And this idea that Happiness is shallow and, and, and that um, joy is superior to happiness is actually just kind of a recent development. I was interested to find this out in my reading this week that historically it wasn't the case. Happiness used to mean the complete fulfillment of the purpose for which humanity was created. It was a lot deeper than just superficial emotions or fleeting pleasures. Christians of years past used the word happiness often and in a positive way. For example, Augustine, who was a theologian and a writer back in the 4th century, said it is in our love for God that we find permanent and enduring happiness. And John Wesley, who was a pastor in the 1700s and the founder, one of the founders of the Methodist denomination, said, true religion, or a heart right toward God and man, implies happiness as well as holiness. And it wasn't until 
1935, that Oswald Chambers wrote this. He said, Joy should not be confused with happiness. In fact, it is an insult to Jesus Christ to use the word happiness in connection with him. Now, Oswald Chambers was a British minister, and he wrote the famous book. You may have it on your shelf. I do. It's my utmost for his highest. But he seems to be one of the sources of this concept that joy and happiness are at odds. And I didn't really see anything in his writing that explained why. Earlier Christians, as we've seen, wouldn't agree with him. And in fact, the earliest Christians, if we look in Acts chapter 2, seem to have a different view as well. I want to just read this here, starting in verse 42. Talking about the early church, it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This says the Christians were experiencing gladness, glad and generous hearts. Sounds like happiness. You read this description and it sounds like a wonderful a wonderful society and a time to be a Christian, right? They are enjoying favor with God and man. They are worshiping God in the temple. They're fellowshipping with one another. It certainly sounds happy. So we can call it joy or we can call it happiness. But in either case, remember, true happiness has its source in Jesus Christ and in having a right relationship with God. So let's look back now where we started, the Declaration of Independence. The Founding Fathers said, Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are unalienable rights bestowed by our Creator. Unalienable rights are those that can't be restrained by human laws. The Founding Fathers said those are actually given to us by God. So do you think that the way modern America views life, liberty, and happiness is what the Founding Fathers had in mind? Do you think that the popular views agree with what the Bible teaches us? and the verses we just looked at. I don't think so. I think America's a long ways off from a correct understanding of what life really means, how we should correctly exercise our liberty, and what the real source of happiness is. And I hope what we've talked about today sticks in your minds at least for a little bit. That true life is eternal life given to us by Jesus himself and the sacrifice he made for us. That liberty doesn't mean we can just do whatever we want to please ourselves, but it means we need to show love and consideration to one another. And that happiness is not found in earthly things. Happiness is not just a shallow idea. True happiness means establishing the right priorities, pursuing God's kingdom, seeking to be righteous like Jesus is righteous, spending time in prayer and in reading the Bible, and having an eternal perspective on life's difficulties. And when we're pursuing God as our main goal, happiness will be a welcome benefit. I'd like to close with a quote from the first sermon that Jonathan Edwards preached back in 1721 when he was 18 years old. And the title of his first sermon was Christian Happiness. He was a preacher in New England back in the 1700s, and this is what he said. 
The godly man is happy in whatever circumstances he is placed because of the spiritual privileges and advantages, joy and satisfactions he actually enjoys while in this life. How great a happiness it is to have all his sins pardoned and to stand guilty of nothing in God's presence. Let's all stand. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness and your presence with us, for your word that is alive, your word that can change our hearts, change our minds, and draw us closer to you if we but pursue you. And Lord, I pray that we would, we would come to understand what you mean by the terms life, liberty, and happiness. Lord, that we would find our happiness in you and not in the things or circumstances around us, but Lord, that we would be stable and solid and we would build our, our houses, our lives on the rock of Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you for those here today. I pray that as we go forth this week, you would bless them. And I pray, Lord, that you would help them to be a blessing and a witness to those around them. We thank you for your presence and your kindness. And we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.